I gave a keynote in front of a room of like 300 of the most high achieving Brown senior women and their mentors. It was a big deal. And I talked about how miserable I'd been at Brown. (laughs) (laughs) I talked about having a panic attack in the library and never leaving my dorm room and all of this. And it was like, I was Oprah. I got a standing ovation and I thought, oh my gosh, what is going on here? (laughs) (laughs) Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. In this episode, I spoke with Maura Ahrens Mealy. Maura is a lot of things. She was the founder of the strategic communications agency Women Online, which she recently sold to Gebbin Communications, and she is now executive vice president of social impact at that firm. Maura is also an author, a podcast host, a public speaker, and she's worked for four Democratic presidential campaigns. We had a good conversation about her career, the intersection of anxiety and entrepreneurship, her previous and upcoming books, and her podcast. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Maura Ahrens Mealy, entrepreneur, host of the Anxious Achiever podcast. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Maura, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? So I'm Maura. I live uh, north of Boston, Massachusetts, with my three children, four cats, dog, gecko, and husband. In that order. He comes last in the order. It's just (laughs) life. He knows it. He was on this podcast earlier, so I'm acquainted with him from that and other things. <laughs> he, he gets enough adulation elsewhere. It's yeah, okay. we don't need to uh, <laughs> raise his profile. No. Uh, my husband, Nico, and I guess I'm an entrepreneur. I just sold my business, which I started about 10 years ago. It was a boutique digital marketing and social impact agency called Women Online. I am now working for the company that bought me, which is a slightly larger business called Gebbin Communications. So for the first time since 2006, I have a job and a boss, which is crazy. And I have a podcast called The Anxious Achiever for Harvard Business Review. My real passion in life is helping people who have clinical anxiety thrive and manage their careers. Well, your careers kind of intersected a lot of my interests and my focus of this podcast, which is politics and entrepreneurship and 
many things that you come across when you're trying to be an entrepreneur in this space. Well, listen, you you kind of wrote the book starting many years ago. I, I wrote a book. <laughs> and I don't know if I wrote it or it wrote me, but you know how it is. I think it's funny because what you said, I guess I'm an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. And I think I say the same thing. There's this reluctance to own that a little bit, but I think I am. I think I was. I sort of am. <laughs> I was going to say, are you, is it a past ten? Are you ever not an entrepreneur? I think even starting a podcast is entrepreneurial. And I think the nice thing about that word is it has a very broad, you know, you can use it for lots of things. But that's the problem. See, I wrote an article to my credit or misfortune a long time ago that went viral, calling out what I call entrepreneurship porn. I think that being Americans of a certain privilege, background, etc., we live in a world where entrepreneurship is so glorified and so fetishized almost. And what does it really mean to be an entrepreneur? So for me, I guess the reason why I say, am I really an entrepreneur is I always thought of myself as a, as a business owner, a small business owner. I mean, I had a, a very successful small business and I was proud of that, but I didn't think of myself necessarily as an entrepreneur because I wasn't like running a tech startup, you know, I, I wasn't getting venture capital or showing up on big stages in Silicon Valley. I was just running a great small business. Which you started, right? I did. I started and then I sold it. So yeah, I'm an entrepreneur, but but I also think that there's such value in valuing, <laughs> you know, good businesses that make people happy and throw off a lot of money for everyone. So I'm confused. Were you arguing that entrepreneurship should be defined more narrowly to only encompass the titans or more broadly to encompass the person who starts a small business and grows it? That's a really good question. I I think what I was arguing was that the inherent value judgment behind being an entrepreneur needed to be um, given a reality check. You know what I mean? The, the vast majority of entrepreneurs are not young men coding in hoodies. They are people over 40. They are, oh God, you have your hoodie on. <laughs> okay, well. Yeah. I started coding probably in a hoodie, but yeah, that, and I was a young man. And how old were you? I was about 32 when I started my company. So not not a terribly young man, but. A lot younger than I am now. Young enough. Yeah. Okay. Well, with your, with the exception of you, Nathaniel, you know, <laughs> I mean, I, I just think that, and data backs this up. Like, if you're, you know, say, a, say a black woman who's forty five, and you want to start a business and become an entrepreneur, a lot of the media and messaging about what it means to be an entrepreneur may be telling you this isn't who you are. And that's not true. And so I think that it, for me, it's really a criticism of what our pop culture and our media portray entrepreneurship as. Because the reality, as you well know, of entrepreneurship is it's really hard. It's not very glamorous. It's a lot of work. And um, it's really about the long haul. Personally, I like broadening that. I, I feel like you're an entrepreneur if you start a nonprofit, not a business. Absolutely. I feel like you're an entrepreneur if you're in a business and you talk that business into building a new product. Well, like the guy who invented Post-its. Did you read about his obituary a couple weeks ago? 
I didn't, but I'm aware of that guy. But what? Tell me about. But it. yeah, but I mean, I, you know, just I mean, the broad brush is, is he worked for a giant multinational corporation. Was he 3M? He, yeah, and he yeah. was like, he he created this glue that they were going to use. I don't know in spacesuits, and it didn't work in spacesuits. But he was like, what if I stuck it on paper? Little now that's paper. <laughs> exactly that's an entrepreneur. <laughs> yeah, that is. So that's why I mean, my feeling is. If that's an honorific, if people get lauded for that kind of behavior, then we ought to spread it around. I, I suppose there are people who are glomming onto the term who don't deserve it, but I think it should be used. This well. was a long time ago, 2013. So that was really a time, if we think back, when you know it was before our current mood about the tech titans. It was before we knew from ProPublica that Jeff Bezos pays no taxes. It was a different era in terms of these guys were who everyone wanted to be. What I've been looking forward to in talking to you is that even if I was by virtue of being a, a male and a, I was a computer science major, there were other ways in which I maybe wasn't typecast for entrepreneurship. Like it was probably the first leadership move I ever made. I might've played sports. I was never captain of the team. I was an introvert, not an extrovert, right? And so there were a lot of challenges that I think that I had from my own personality in learning how to run an enterprise and learning how to bring people along with me, hire them and confer direction on them and things like that. Given the fact that you wrote a book, which I read, uh, called Hiding in the Bathroom, which is kind of about entrepreneurship from that perspective where you don't necessarily want to get up on stage and talk about it. I thought maybe we'd have something in common. Well, I was going to ask you if you can think back to the moment where it became real to you that I have to do this, otherwise I'm going to fail. I have to bring these people together. I have to stand up and hold the room. Like, when did all that become real to you? And then what did you do about it? Well, honestly, I think it, it became real over and over, mm. right? So mm -hmm. I'm not sure if I can point to like the first time, but I can remember a time, and this is my interview, damn it, but- Sorry. Uh, <laughs> Introverts ask questions of other people so they don't have to talk. That's exactly right. <laughs> but I had a time moderately early in the company where I had three people decide to leave the company out of 15 to 20 person company in the same week. Wow. And one was sort of in charge of engineering. One was sort of in charge of product and one was in it. I was part of an entrepreneurship forum with some other peers, I guess. I happened to have a meeting of that right in that week. And I told them, Hey, this just happened. And one of the guys there said, you know, these are the moments where you kind of win your leadership stripes, but you have to, you have to act assertively and you have to control the situation. Not like I didn't know that already within a day or two, I had gone back to the person who was the second candidate for the product job six months before hired that person. I had found all of the pieces I needed because what you don't want in a small company is to have people feel like things are out of control, they'll start looking too. In this case, one of the people had been hired by Microsoft, one by Hewlett Packard. The company was was doing great. It was just a confluence of bad luck. Right. You had good talent. <laughs> we, we had good talent and, they, and good talent 
sometimes gets lured away, right? Mm -hmm. Especially from a small firm. So to me, that's like a moment where I knew I had to be a leader in whatever form or fashion I could do it. And the thing is, it's really hard when you are introverted, yes, but when you're an anxious person or a very sensitive person, I find to withstand those blows, which are just natural and like you said, just part of life as a business person, and then just kind of keep going. I have a hard time because I'm so sensitive and I take things so personally and I get really anxious and in my head and then I still have to like run the staff meeting, (laughs) you know, and and that's just hard. Yeah. I I don't think I'm anxious. I don't think I'm quite as sensitive. I do worry. And I, especially, you know, 2 a.m., I had a a good habit of that, waking up and projecting bad scenarios. Uh, That's anxiety, my friend. Well, uh, (laughs) it didn't inform my day so badly. You know, I kind of had it under control in that respect, perhaps then. But um, yeah, I mean, we're humans. And and when we're faced with challenges, I think it's natural to, I, I don't understand people who wouldn't like get hyped up before they get at bat in the world series or have to sit on a panel and talk about their enterprise or for me that was often very challenging it is challenging but i think that's the point and that's why i don't want people to be scared of anxiety because that is the definition of anxiety david barlow who's you know famous professor and scholar of anxiety you know he would say we need anxiety as humans because nobody would ever win the world series Nobody would create Hamilton. Nobody would, you know, frankly, plant the crops, right? Knowing that they only had 10 days before the seasons changed. We need that anxiety. It's a part of our survival instinct. It's literally wired into our brains. And so it's healthy and it keeps us going and it helps us excel if we can manage it. And so part of what I like to do is I like to talk to really successful people who are open about the fact that, yeah, I lost sleep. But it didn't mean I was crippled. I'm a leader. That's what I do. (laughs) Well, I want to ask you a little bit about how you got on this path Mm -hmm. to having all this wisdom that you've acquired and earned over time, right? Where'd you grow up? What, what What was your family like? What's the background? Oh, my gosh. I grew up in South Orange, New Jersey. But my parents split. Typical Gen X. My parents split when I was very young. And my father lived in New York. And so I was kind of like a uh, like a bridge and tunnel shuttled kid of the 80s. I don't know if any of our listeners out there, like nobody would ever do this today, but my parents would like drop me off at Grand Central Station by myself at eight years old. For, you know, my mom would drop me off and my father would then be expected to come meet me. And so I was pretty, pretty independent from a young age and oldest in the, in the birth lineup pretty intense kid. And I think that, you know, I had a really incredible childhood and that I had a lot of great education and really interesting life, but also I'm still really hyper vigilant, and I'm a warrior. And, and that was also because I think I just grew up in a, in a, you know, a household where the, the adults were sort of like, you're, you're good, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like do your thing. <laughs> um, because I would normally think that the, the more anxious folks grew up in households where the parents were really on them to 
achieve. Sometimes. Absolutely. I mean, I think we all have different patterns. I mean, part of me thinks maybe I was just wired this way, you know? That's my bet. Yeah, totally. I mean, I was just always, you know, I'm the kind of person who like, I wake up at six in the morning and the day is just not, there's just not enough hours in the day for everything I want to get done. (laughs) Just, I don't, and it's funny because my husband is like this too. And so the two of us are incorrigible together. Like we're exhausting. Two of my kids are like that and the other is not. And I can tell that he is exhausted by all of us. Do you want to get stuff so much done in the day because you're excited about all the stuff or because you will feel bad if you don't do enough? Sometimes it's both. I mean, sometimes, frankly, with work, I want to get stuff done because I'm anxious about it and I want to get it off my plate. But of course, then it instantly gets filled but I, I no, I, I honestly think that there's just there's just so much I want to do. I, I want to garden and I want to cook and I want to clean, but I also want to write and I want to send a proposal to a new client. And then, oh my gosh, you know, I saw this article that my my former client. I mean, it's like literally, there's just a lot in my brain. I want to play tennis. I want to go jogging. It's just who I am. It's who I've always been. My mother will say that when I was a kid, I was like that. Some people say that some people have sort of like this feeling that there's like an internal motor yeah. driving you forward. A hundred percent. Yeah. hundred yeah. percent. And that, that's the achiever side of you. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's wired right in there with the anxiousness. It's, it's never going to change. <laughs> <laughs> can you, can you relax on the beach? I can't sit. <laughs> when we go on vacation. <laughs> my my husband and my sister will watch me all day in motion and laugh at me. And then, of course, I'll pass out at like seven at night because I'm just physically exhausted because I've been in motion all day long. Yeah. You went off to Brown, correct? Uh-huh. How was that for you? Uh, not great. I was clinically depressed through most of college. I wish I could do it over again. I didn't actually go back to Brown for almost, oh geez, 15 years after I graduated, even though I, most of it lived only like an hour away, I could not set foot on the campus. It brought back horrible memories. I didn't want to be who I was in college. I didn't want to be reminded of it. And then I was invited back to speak. I gave a keynote in front of a room of like 300 of the most high achieving Brown senior women and their mentors. It was a big deal. And I talked about how miserable I'd been at Brown. (laughs) (laughs) I talked about having a panic attack in the library and never leaving my dorm room and all of this. And it was like, I was Oprah. I got a standing ovation and I thought, oh my gosh, what is going on here? (laughs) (laughs) Because people could so relate to it. Yes. And that was my aha moment. I mean, this wouldn't get, I think this was 2011 or 2010 where it was like, wait a minute, I can talk about what it was like to be clinically depressed and zoned out on anti-anxiety medicine and like all this stuff and people are here for it. You know, people want this. It was before that, were you embarrassed by, did you feel like it was something you wanted to keep secret that the the suffering that you were enduring? Well, no one cared. I mean, no one asked me, frankly, you know, it was just, I just, nobody cared. Well, my, my therapist cared, (laughs) you know, but, um, no, I just hadn't reached a point in my career where 
uh, I would be asked. You know, I, I did a lot of talks like you and I used to do the circuit, right, in politics and tech. And I would talk about that. I would talk about online marketing, blogging, but I had never been asked personal questions before. You know, and it wasn't like I was a psychologist or a self-help leader. I was just a person, a young mom at that point. And so that was a moment for me that really shifted where I learned that, and look, I'm going to say it right now. Like I am, I have a ton of, I am privileged. I am, I do not have a sob story. Like I do not want to be thought of as, oh, that poor woman, because I am like hella privileged in life, but I have my baggage as everyone does. And so it became clear to me that if I was just open about that, that people would respond to it because they they weren't hearing it enough. They had so much mentorship, but they didn't have enough truth. I, I want to understand a little bit more about that college, uh, Maura. So, <laughs> really, yes, <laughs> do we because, have to? Yeah, because <laughs> like, so you, panic attack in the library. But like, did that make it so that you couldn't enjoy learning? You were too worried about it. How could it be so awful? Because so many good things are happening in college, right? How did it overwhelm that? I would say that we are expected that college in our 20s are supposed to be the happiest times of our life because we glorify youth. But I firmly believe that for every person for whom that is true, there is a person for whom they would never want to repeat their youth ever. I certainly wouldn't want to do junior high over or high school over. I mean, I I, I was perfectly fine with it. I was kind of, this is what I do. (laughs) Oh no, something's due again, but I'll do it. But no. And maybe it's a woman's thing. I don't know. I I, I talked to so many people. I think it's just a person thing. I think there's anxiety knows no demographic. Sophomore year, man, I'm telling you, there's something that happens in sophomore year when you're about 19 years old, where a lot of developmental stuff clicks and you have to go through some profound change and loss. And I think that it's a very vulnerable time for a lot of people. Yeah. Like you said something about therapy. Obviously we grow up along the way, but what was the transformation from that anxious Brown student to a person who can now sit in front of the microphone all the time and, write books and well, I was always that person. I was no I was different. No, I mean I was school president in high school. I was always a star. I was just a very mentally unhealthy star, you know, and I mean I had a panic attack and had to go to the ER very recently. I'm not I'm not a different person. What have you learned about how to manage it? You just have to manage it. <laughs> You just just have to get through it. It's like exercise. If you want to stay in shape, you can't take two weeks off. You can take a few days off, but you can't stop exercising. I think mental wellness is very similar. If you are the kind of person who, for whatever reason, chemically, genetically, this is your map, like you need to pay attention to it every single day. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know, I know a few people like that. Mm. It's like a whole nother job. It's, it's like exhausting. they have another people who have it strongly have a whole nother job to just manage themselves 
and keep on the straight and narrow and be able to be normal citizens doing the work that they do and, and beyond that. I, I mean, you may not need that, but uh, I, I've seen it. It's amazing how you just phrased it. I never thought of it like that, but I think that is true. But I'll give you a counter argument, which is that those of us who have the ability to manage it have really given ourselves a gift and and hopefully the people who love us a gift in that we are building strength and resilience and guardrails and infrastructure, but also that we are not living unconsciously. I think that, I mean, my lens is work. All the, all the writing and talking and everything I talk about is about is through a work lens. And I think you'd agree with me that there are so many people in our work lives who have not gone through all the realizations and who are just unconsciously acting out their shit all day long. You've, and, you've done the work. Well, you have to do the work every day. You are introspective and it's forced you to be thoughtful and to think about how you live and make choices. Well, but it, it has really practical implications. Like for example, how many bosses right now are just sending out emails and slacks at crazy hours of the day because they're so anxious about everything that's going on, whether they're in touch with that or not. And I think if you're lucky enough to have done the work, you could say to yourself, it's 5 a.m. I'm awake. I'm worrying. Why am I worrying? Let's get to the root of this before you send the email out to the whole team and make them anxious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I know I, I go through this thing with myself where I'll be like, why am I upset right now? You know, and then I have to search back. Oh, I'm upset because I just read this thing. I'm upset because I had this interaction with a kid. I have to hunt it down. And sometimes it could be more than one thing. You know, I think being aware of that and sorting it out within your own mind is really important. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because I've had a, you should come on my podcast, but we'll, we'll file that away. But um, I've had a bunch of really big time CEOs on my podcast recently who, now that I'm thinking about it, they do this other job that you're talking about. Paul English, who co-founded kayak.com and a bunch of other tech startups is bipolar. And his regime is exhausting. Yeah, I bet. Because that's like on a whole nother level. That's a whole other level. I mean, he has a serious mental illness. Now, of course, he's he's very wealthy and he's sort of at the point in his career where he can do what he wants. But I think that he would say to you, in fact, I think he did say to me, no, this has made me who I am. Oh yeah. It's everything like this is inextricably intertwined with you. You get the good and you get the bad. And the trick is to make the, make the most of it. You only get, I mean, this is, this is the raw material you have. Do you really believe that? It sounds like you are more of a, a nature guy than a nurture guy. I'm both. You're both. I mean, I'm both. Like, I know I came with a certain nature. I've seen, I've had children. I've seen that they have distinct personalities from the get-go. But I also know that it matters how you nurture. It matters tremendously. And, and it matters every day, all the choices that you make about how you spend your time. I've had times in my life where my body told me I was on the wrong path. I was a PhD student at MIT in political science, 
and I started getting irregular heartbeats and just feeling like I was on the wrong path. I, I enjoyed the classes. I made friends with professors, but it was clear that I shouldn't become a professor of this to me to physically before maybe even it was clear mentally. And so when I escaped that and didn't write a dissertation and started a company and you know, it was very gradually became a bigger company. It was just a totally right change for me. And it worked out to transform my life from one that wouldn't have been a good fit and would have been, I'm certain, less fulfilling, less successful, you know, broadly speaking than, than what turned out. And I think one of the secrets that I had along the way was maybe I didn't know where to go, but I knew where not to go. I could avoid the kinds of jobs or activities that were bad for me. So important. And, and pursue the ones that, that are. I think sometimes it's enough. I say this to, to young people who are feeling overwhelmed by their choices in life, that sometimes it is enough to know what you can't do. <laughs> I think that that's important for people to hear. When I talk to young people, some of them are so directed and they're going to, you know, they're going to be a doctor and they got it, you know, even if it's work, even if it's tough. But what I see is the people who don't know what they're going to be, who think they have no economic value and never will, but they're smart. And I just know the world is full of opportunity. And I know from the hiring side how rare it is to find a talented person that will do their work and, you know, learn along the way. So I just, I just see for them just a million things that they can do that they could thrive with. See, but that's, that is the value of mentorship, right? Like having someone who can see for you what you can't. Christine Coe, Dr. Christine Coe, who's worked, we've worked together for 10 years, will tell a similar story where she was in her postdoc. So she got the PhD. She was in a postdoc at MGH. She was a music and brain scientist. And she was sitting in a lab. And you can just see the lab, like all white, fluorescent lights, kind of cold, right? Really quiet. And she said one day she was just sitting in the lab and she stared at the pile of books and listened to the silence. And she thought, I can't be this person. She's an extrovert. She is a creative person. She thrives on big energy. And she left. And it was super brave of her because she was carrying the expectations of her immigrant parents of like so much. <laughs> and, and that's hard in the moment. Like it's easy for us to tell these stories in retrospect, but it's hard in the moment. But sometimes you just have to understand who you are. Yeah. I know well that, that there are many stages that I will just be miserable in and I don't go there. Generally, when I verge there, I'm not happy. How did your career take shape that you end up like at the DNC doing internet stuff? How did you go from college grad to that? Just give me the brief version of that. I mean, I was lucky because I was, a, I, I graduated like in the, during the Clinton era, it was a very good economy. I was obsessed with two things. I was obsessed with film, with independent art house film and politics because of my father, probably, who loved both and um, raised me while he was running for office and teaching 
film <laughs> film courses, you know, at the local Y, he would he would get old, literally film canisters of old, you know, Buster Keaton, Charlie Chaplin, the Marx Brothers, all the way up to the French New Wave. And that's how I was raised. And so when I graduated from Brown, I had done internships working in the film industry. And, you know, the nice thing about going to a place like Brown is like, you know, my best friend's mom was the senior executive at Warner Brothers. So I got a great job in New York City. I was a publicity assistant at an art house film studio. And I was I was good at it. You know, I baby I babysat movie stars and I have great stories, but it wasn't really like intellectually where I wanted to be. And everyone was going to the internet. This was 1999 at the time, and it was like Silicon Alley, right? The first dot com boom, pets.com. And so I um, was reading Variety because my job was I would come in every morning at 6 a.m. and cut out the clips from the newspapers, the trades about movies and stuff. And I saw that there was an opening at this web company called iVillage, which was a woman's community. I faxed them. I applied for a job. I got a job and I started working in .com, which was so exciting at the time. But at iVillage, what I ended up working on was their election 2000 project. And so what we did was we had this big community of women on message boards and we brought all the candidates to them. I flew up to Buffalo when Hillary Clinton was running for Senate <laughs> and I sat with Hillary. She was staying um, with her Wellesley roommates at her Wellesley roommates house who lived in Buffalo, big old beautiful house. We sat on the guest bed together and dialed up on the modem to talk to the women of my village it was amazing. And I was like, this is the coolest thing. Like, there's all these people on the internet talking about things. And it's so amazing. And politicians need to know about this. And it was just serendipity. And so I stayed with iVillage. I went to London and I worked for them in London. And then I actually got a big job in online travel. And I ran marketing for an online travel agency, which was great because I learned all about quantitative skills, you know, running a big budget, cost per click, blah, blah, blah. But then I thought, I'm going to go work in politics. And so I emailed a Brown classmate who worked for John Kerry, David Wade. And I said, hey, Kerry's running for president. Are you hiring? I have all these internet skills. And he was like, okay. And I went and I met with the team and they hired me. I mean, the Kerry campaign at the time was not exactly the cat's pajamas, let's be honest. <laughs> My now husband, who was working for Howard Dean, they were the cat's pajamas. And so they hired me and it was, you know, they didn't pay me very much, but I was oh, you were working against your husband. Did you know? Well, he wasn't my husband? No, I didn't yeah. know. Him. No, oh, no, no. Got it. Yeah. No, we didn't meet till right after the election. Did you, this, were you in the Josh Ross era at Carrie I was pre-Josh Ross. Yeah. I was pre-Josh Ross. Let's be honest. I was, I mean, it's been a long enough time. I was not suited for working in politics. I got layered over very quickly. And I always talk about this because I think it's really important. I did not know how to advocate for myself. I was a young woman. My priorities were not in the right place. And as soon as the campaign got traction, bigger and better people were hired above me. That's what happens in politics. It's what and happens th in politics. They layer you. That's, they layer you. How did you deal with that? There's kind of a physical reaction, an ego reaction, you know, like, but it depends on who layers you, right? Like if, if it makes sense. Well, I'll tell you what happened. It's kind of an interesting story. So back in the day when no one cared about Carrie, the thing about politics that's so interesting is that a lot of wealthy people with time on their hands who've sold internet companies like to come and give you advice. 
And so I, I got a lot of that. And here I am, I was like 25 years old, you know, I was a bit in over my head. And we built a new website. A gentleman who had started a lot of successful companies hooked us up with his firm who had built all his websites. And the website was green. It was forest green. And I thought it was really pretty, but it was not a good political website. And I know you're like an expert on this. You would have died. I don't know if you remember this even. No, I never had a good sense for what color on a website. Well, if if, <laughs> if you're a politician and you're not red, white, and blue, forget it. Anyway, so <laughs> Seth Godin... Well, Seth was advising us for free because that's oh, the wow. other thing that happens when you work on a presidential campaign is legendary people just call you up and are, and Seth said, you got to get rid of that green monstrosity. <laughs> <I'll never> <laughs> <forget>. <laughs> he said, this is the worst website. <laughs> and here am I. And honestly, I'm 25 years old. I have all these rich men telling me what to do all day long. And I'm dealing with a campaign that literally barely knows what the internet is. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know what to do here. Like, I, I what's the right answer? Ted Kennedy's coming in with his big standard poodles saying, are we raising money? I hear Howard Dean's raising all the money. And we're like, we're not really raising. I mean, it was so uncomfortable in so many ways in terms of the political person dynamics. And in terms of the poodle. Well, the poodles were cute. <laughs> they were big. I don't, did you ever, they were like two big black standard poodles. Anyway, the point is I just, <laughs> I like, I didn't know what to do. And so then in comes Josh Ross and all these guys from Silicon Valley who are like, we're going to build you a great website. And they did. And I was kind of relieved probably the green monstrosity. Yes. But I'm certain that you learned a lot in that. Oh my role. God. I learned a ton. I learned a ton. If I could do it all over again differently, I would. But the point is, is that I learned a ton and politics is not for the faint of heart. I'll never forget after the election, because, you know, we lost the election very close, but Kerry, of course, went on to win, become the nominee, blah, blah, blah. And then we did really well online. And even though I was layered over, I still did a lot of cool stuff. And I was, I was kind of a hot ticket coming out of you know, in the DC hiring race, Jonah Seiger, who I'm sure you know, he was working for Michael Bloomberg at the time, I think. And he took me out to lunch and he said, listen, more, I'm going to give you advice. This was probably two months after the election in 2005. And he said, you have a window to make a big leap in your career right now because you've just come off a presidential election and you did really great work and you got interviewed a lot. You need to take advantage of that to get the best job you can. And I was like, okay. And it's interesting because I think if I was a different person or maybe a man, people would have told me to start my own company, but no one did. And I'm glad I didn't. I wasn't ready. But I did get a lot of advice of like, you have a small window. You should really use it to negotiate and get a big job. And that was helpful. And what was the job you got? So I went to work at Edelman which is a very prestigious um, PR and communications firm. And I, I started a department for them. I started their digital public affairs team, which is now a huge department. And they, over time, they picked up a lot of people off presidential campaigns. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's how it worked in D.C. You either, you either went out to Silicon Valley. This was a little early for that. But you'd either go corporate and get a big job in corporate, start your own firm, or go work at a D.C. firm in a prestigious, you know, job. How did you get to the starting of the firm you just sold? 
women What's online. That? Yeah. Well, because I was so bad at working at Edelman. <laughs> so bad. I'm so terrible at working in large organizations for other people because I... I just shy away from it. I, I can't even contemplate No, I was like, look, I got to Edelman and similar things happened that had happened at, at in politics, which is just I was... I, I was just outsmarted and outwitted and I just didn't have it in me to fight. I completely can relate to that. That's, I mean, like the only time I've worked in a large organization was the Hillary campaign in 07, 08, where I was CTO and I came from running a company and I went from like master of my own domain and everybody had to do what I said mostly, <laughs> you know, at least that that was the general way of the world to like every just complicated internal politics that I oh didn't understand gosh. just feeling like the arrows were flying that I didn't even know how to track them. And, uh, oh and, my gosh. and I'm so like, who do I report to and, and why are they out to get me and things like that? Well, and you were a big deal. I mean, you were, you were the, the CTO of a really well-regarded company and you weren't a kid. I was the owner of that company. And exactly. The president of that co- oh, yeah. sorry. That's right. Right. I'm sorry. CTO of Hillary. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yes. Honestly, if I hadn't had existing relationships with multiple department heads in that campaign that liked me, I would have been gone. I would have been ousted worse than layered because there were multiple attempts. <laughs> there just were. There always are. I, you know, I it's didn't funny. know that people behave like that. I was oh, like, please. "What is going?" I didn't. I was like, "I was like a babe in the woods." Oh. See, this is the thing. You know, it's funny because I was actually just telling someone this when I was at Edelman. The New York office tried to fire me, and I was aware of it. And everyone was like, "The New York office is trying to fire you because because I was the DC office and we were competitive." And I was like. Please fire me. <laughs> like, I, I don't. I don't care. Like, I was. I was so in over my head. But but I think what I was good at, and this is where I just want to share this with your listeners, if they can learn anything from my failures in large organizations, is I was always good at personal PR. And actually, my bosses used to get pissed at me for it. Because I would talk to the media or I would like give talks and they would get upset at me, which I probably shouldn't have done. But I must have had some kind of instinct that like, I'm going to get something good out of this experience. So I was always able to land on my feet a little bit in that I may have gotten layered over. I may have been basically pushed out or left the organization, but I had a lot of press clippings (laughs) and I had, and I could put it on my resume. I was somebody. And and honestly, that's how I was able to build a successful freelance practice and then eventually my own business. Tell me about that. Well, like, just only because I was able to say, I started this team at Edelman that's now 200 people. My former intern at Edelman, one of them, Tristan Roy, best intern I ever had, is the like global GM of all of Edelman Digital. We message sometimes and I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm proud of that. They have some pretty, pretty big titles over there. I've noticed anytime you put global in front of your, no, but they are, they are seriously global and it's, and, and he's amazing and he deserves it. Even at like 21 years old, I could tell this kid's going places, but, 
but I can still preserve that relationship a little bit and talk about it, even though I was never going to last there. Sometimes you learn the most from things that aren't a good fit and you learn what, what isn't right for you. And I think that's all right. You know, and careers are long. I think people are sometimes still stuck in the thinking that like you have a path. You don't have a path. You got a million restarts, you know, it's always (laughs) a new semester. Look, I have a new job right now. Yeah. And you're probably not going to last there, Maura. (laughs) Well, no, my boss might be listening, but that's okay. You know what? I'm older now and wiser. (laughs) So, So what's the founding story for Women Online? I love politics. I was a blogger and I used to go to Townhouse Tavern, which this is for serious progressive Democratic nerds listening. There was a group of bloggers, all young men, who used to meet and drink on Sundays at a local dive bar in D.C. and talk about issues. And I would go, and there were like two other women. And they would be like, healthcare doesn't matter. Who cares about healthcare? It's all about nuclear energy. And I would sit there, and even as a woman who hadn't had kids yet and everything, I was like, no, I'm pretty sure healthcare matters to a lot of people in this country. (laughs) And I was just like, this is this is crazy. Women are being ignored. I had been ignored as a young woman in politics. I had had a hell of a time. I could tell you stories. And then I met a woman, Lisa Stone, who started an organization called Blog Her, which was a community for women who blog. It was the iVillage.com of its day. And I started writing for her. And I thought, this is it. This is it for me. This is about women speaking their truth through online community this is what I want to do with my life. And by the way, I know that organizations and nonprofits and companies want to sponsor this work. And that was it. So tell me how you make a company out of that and how does, what's the trajectory? I don't know how you make a company out of women's nonprofit and issue advocacy blogging, but somehow I did it. Our first clients were American Cancer Society, which is a, you know, pretty big client and Ellen Galinsky of the Families and Work Institute and American Cancer Society I met through a colleague who said, you know, we're rebranding. We want to reach women. You work with all these bloggers at Blog Her and stuff. Like, how do we reach them? We need we need to get them writing about how to prevent cancer through lifestyle changes. And I was like, I could do that. <laughs> so I helped American Cancer Society with their More Birthdays campaign. It's still work that I'm incredibly proud of. We won all kinds of awards. You know, we just mobilized women to use their blogs and their eventually their Facebook pages, and now it would be their Instagram pages and their TikToks to create great content. That's what we do. So how many years are you at it with this enterprise before you sell it? Uh, a decade. Ten. A decade. Yeah. So an instant success like all of us. Like all of us. Well, but I've been doing this work since really 1999 when I worked at iVillage. How did it grow in terms of employees over time? Well, it was always small because um, I, being the anxious overachiever that I am, I knew enough about myself to know that I had to keep it small. So unlike you, I, I didn't I didn't really want to scale it. It was 10 people. It was a wonderful business. We I always said we have the world's biggest clients and we literally had the world's biggest clients, but we're a small company. We do what we want. We were always remote. And, um, at the same time, you know, I had three kids, 
lost a parent to cancer, you know, moved across country, you know, had a crazy, and married to Nico, which is, you know, for anyone who knows Nico who's listening, kind of a job. So like I had a lot going on. And so I never worked full time at it. And yet still it became, you know, a really beautiful, like multi seven figure company. And I'm so proud of it. Why would you sell a beautiful multi seven figure company? A small seven figure, not multi, small seven figure, but seven figures. Um, why? Because it was getting too big for me. And I did not want to either take outside capital or take that next step. I'm not good at QuickBooks, tough management decisions, process. I'm good at selling and I'm good at creative and I'm good at managing a few people. Yeah. In the agreement, how long do you have to stay with the firm that bought you? Three years. Oh, wow. That's a long time. (laughs) (laughs) But you know what? I get to do what I want now. I mean, this is the thing that's so great is that I vowed after the 2020 tax season, because every year at the end of the year, I mean, I had a small business, although I had a bookkeeper, like at the end of the year, I would go through QuickBooks and just make sure everything matched up because I'm, I'm a Virgo and I'm careful. And I thought like, I can't do, I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. And now I don't have to, now I have HR. (laughs) How big is the company that bought you? It's about, it's about double, uh, 40 people. Yeah. Why did they buy you? What are they getting out of that? We are a small team of really high level practitioners who have worked with the biggest clients in the world. You know, I've worked on four presidential campaigns. Our expertise in what is now called content and influencer marketing is really, really hot in the communications and PR space. They bought my Rolodex our clients and our skill set. You you had an influencer database or something mm-hmm. too. The yeah. mission list, correct. Yeah. And this again comes out of my experience at Blogger, where I, I knew that women with big online platforms cared about social issues. And if they work directly with organizations, like we we did with Obama back in the day, like these women bloggers were dying to talk about Obama's health plan. <laughs> I think that's why they bought us. You know, I always would joke because we were a very niche offering. You know, we did a very specific kind of work, but it is work that has been proven in the past few years to be, I think, essential. Did you try to sell it? Did you put it on the market? Did you have multiple offers? Did they come to you? Like, how did you do this exit? So I have three small children, and I was offered a chance to go away for eight days to Israel with nothing to do, but just like be with myself and a bunch of other great women. And I got to go. And one night in the desert, we were just like left out in the desert. And I realized that selling this company was what I needed to do. I was writing my book. I really was excited about all the coaching work and corporate speaking that I'm doing about anxiety and leadership. And I knew that I would have to make a hard decision that either I'd have to take outside capital to keep the company growing and going, or I'd have to shut it down. I dated a little bit over the years since then, you know, conversations with other firms in our space, in our political sort of consulting space. But uh, the woman who bought me, Heather Whaling at Gebbin, she and I are in a women's professional community together. We're, We're on an email list 
called The List. And she was growing. She runs an incredible business. She's good at everything I'm bad at. And she said, I want to grow and I want to grow through acquisition. I want a boutique firm with these parameters. And I literally emailed her and I said, you should buy me. (laughs) And she did. (laughs) How's it feel now? Oh, I'm so happy. And uh, Nico had sold his, had, had sold Echo, right? Yeah. He sold Echo to his employees. Yeah. Very different kind of move, I guess. Yeah. Very different kind of move. But I think, I think his move was less maybe carefully thought out than mine. He just had so much else on his plate and really great job offers coming. And for me, it was really about, look, I don't have any job offers. So I, I have to keep earning a good living here, but like, I need to begin the process. Why are you writing books and starting podcasts and all this on the side? What's driving that? It's just like the waking up 6am, not enough hours in the day. It's just some people garden, some people bake. I write and do podcasts. And also, frankly, I feel like there, there's a market for it. There is a market for it. So I mentioned the the book I read, but I understand there's another book in the works, right? Based on your podcast? Is that true? Yeah, it's, uh, yes, it is called The Anxious Achiever, I think. It's with Harvard Business Review Press, and it will be out hopefully in 2022. What will it say? It will say that if you are an anxious leader, if you have clinical anxiety or clinical depression, or if you just have a propensity towards that, it's okay. It's actually an incredible leadership skill. Here's how you understand it. Here's how you think about managing it. Here's what other people have done. And here's how you use that knowledge to make work better for everybody. What are the things that you do? Like, what are the key couple moves that you make? Supposing you're a very anxious achiever and you're, you know, you're, you're in college, you're coming out of college, you're setting out on a career if you have a few minutes with that person to tell them it's okay, what other things beyond knowing that it's okay and you can make something of it should they know? The two most simple things, and literally anybody can take value from this if they don't know it already, is to understand what sets you off, often called your triggers, and how you react. So for example, let's use money. Money is a huge huge anxiety provoker for, I would say, 85% of the population. And if you're an entrepreneur, you need to understand how money makes you feel. Because we all know as entrepreneurs that we need to manage our money. We need to know what's coming in and what's coming out. But what we don't talk about is how does money make me feel? And how does the fact that my, for me, my parents had a messy divorce and my father stopped paying the bills affect my personal attitude about money? And then how am I acting that out as an entrepreneur? Am I always feeling like we're about to go broke? Am I terrified of taking on debt to the detriment of my company? Am I micromanaging? Am I in denial about money and overspending because I'm scared to look at my bank balance? If we don't understand the triggers that make us act certain ways, we can't be the leaders we want to be. That makes sense. I just feel like it's so basic. And we kind of know this in relationships. You know, we know that like, oh, I'm commitment phobic because of my parents' divorce. There's a million rom-coms devoted to this. 
<laughs> but like we play this out at work every single day too. And not as many people talk about it. I guess I like the podcast world because like you mentioned, it's nice to listen. It's nice to hear from other people. Why do you like it? What's in it for you? I love podcasting because it reminds me of blogging back in the day. It's intimate, but it's also, it's a great introverted medium. Do you know what I mean? Like, well, you and I are looking at each other, which normally I don't do. Normally I'm just on audio, but I love to ask people questions and learn about people, but I can do it in the privacy of my own home. And then when I plug in my earbuds and I'm walking my dog, I'm with someone really interesting. Yeah. And it's, a, it's, it's just a gift. I love it. Yeah. I like it too. Um, is there a question that I didn't ask you that I should have? Oh, geez. I don't think so. We went a lot of places. Is there a question I should ask you? You tell me. Is there something you're curious about? Well, I'm just curious. Um, well, what are you, I'm curious what you're doing now, what you're excited about. What are you working on besides this podcast? I'm up in Vermont Ooh, on nice. my family land and I've been able to do for the past bunch of summers. And so I'm really enjoying taking trees down where they've died or shouldn't be. I'm enjoying hanging out with my dad. I have a company called Graphicacy that I have, that I do part-time, um, but I have a staff of about six, seven people um, that I keep in touch with. Um, I have my podcast, which I do three episodes a week, which is very busy making. Whoa. I do some advising of other entrepreneurs, uh, that have small businesses pretty informally, which, which is fun. I'm a dad and a husband, and I just like to have a fair amount of unscheduled time so I can do projects that I want to do. I'm very lucky. Yeah. Unscheduled time. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. It's been an honor. Anything else you want to say? Mm, good. That was Maura Aaron's Mealy. Maura is at gebbincommunication.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.